further ado, uh, we are in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, so turn there. Halfway through the uh, second half of first, verse 5 through verse 11, this is actually our last text in Peter as we close out this wonderful book. As you're turning there, um, you know, for the, the next couple weeks, we'll be giving some specific sermons just for just where we kind of feel and sense that the Lord is taking us, specific to us. And then two weeks from now on September 4th with Labor Day weekend, we will launch into a new series and a new book that is not in the New Testament. It is from the other one, and that's all I'm telling you. <laughs> but it's going to be good. <laughs> I'll tell you that too. First Peter chapter 5, I couldn't think of a better way to end such an incredible letter from this old man of the faith, best friend of Jesus, disciple of the Messiah, writing to people who are living in a, uh, a culture and a time of extreme turmoil and anxiety. He's giving them a word of hope, and he's been doing that for many chapters, and now he closes with a burst of messianic energy. Um, and this is, this is beautiful. We'll start, last week's text kind of overlapped with this, so I'm just gonna overlap a little bit today. We'll start with the second half of verse five, and we'll read all the way through verse 11. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood all over the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just choose today to situate ourselves under the power of your authoritative word. With the last line of that text just fresh on our lips and in our memory that the dominion belongs to you forever and ever and we just, we want to exalt you today. We want to create space in this building for your glory to emanate and to have its rightful place. And we just pray that as an act of worship, our listening to your word would be received as our adoration of you. That as we listen to every single word that you have spoken, as we digest and eat and cherish and apply to our lives all that you have spoken. It would be for us an act of worship and faith. And we pray that as we fall down at our feet before you, 
in awe and wonder of who you are and what you have done and what you are still yet to do. We pray that we would be humble, that we would be situated so low, not for purposes of self-deprecation, not to feel guilty, not to feel bad about ourselves, but situated so low that when we look up, we would see you so high. Since we have been raised with Christ, pray that we would set our minds on things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We pray that as we do, all these other things would just begin to realign with the kingdom of God as they were meant to. For those of us that are tired, for those of us that are weary, we pray that the God who promises to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish would make himself so palpable and tangible in our midst today as you do all of these things by the power of your precious Holy Spirit. We worship you today. There's nobody like you in heaven and on earth. No other name like yours. And pray that your name would fill our consciousness today. In Jesus' name, amen. Title of this closing sermon is called What Winning Looks Like in God's Kingdom. Well, Oh, this, this is grape juice. I couldn't find a bottled water, so I grabbed one of the communion cans. But <laughs> Getting holier by the moment. <laughs> what winning looks like in God's kingdom. I want us to really think deeply about this, because there isn't a single person in this room who doesn't think about winning in some way or another. Even the smallest kid thinks about winning. We might couch it in different language or use uh, creative rhetoric. We might even spiritualize it, but everybody is tempted with some form of winning. Even my daughter, Abby, is right now in the stage where she just wants to win. Win what? I don't know. Her one thing right now is racing, whether it's on a scooter or running. It could be coming home. It could be moving from the car to the garage door. It could be going up the stairs to the front door. It doesn't matter. If we're on a journey somewhere, it's a race for her. But here's the kicker. She still doesn't understand winning yet. She doesn't extend the process of the race. She just wants to get there first. And so we'll have a race to the front door, and I'll beat her because I'm faster than her. And she will cry so hard. And as we're running, and as I'm passing her, and she's just running, she's looking at me with tears in her eyes going, Daddy, you can't beat me. I have to win. And I'm all, that's not how races work. You have to be faster than me. And she's all, no, I don't. You have to let me win. I remember a couple days ago, we were in the garage just on scooters, and I gave her a head start on a scooter, nonetheless, and I was jogging, and I was still winning. And you should have seen her just like 12 miles an hour, just in beautiful, perfect scooter form, just kicking as hard as she can, her hair trailing behind her, but tears just coming out of her eyes going, you can't win, you can't win. So even my daughter, who still doesn't quite get the concept of racing, still has this, this idea of winning just deeply ingrained in her heart. And at this moment, it's pretty cute. 
but somewhere along the way it gets uncute. When we begin to push down people around us because we're so obsessed with winning. You can look anywhere in the world, right? Whether it's television, whether it's work, whether even just some, some friendly banter and some competitive spirit in a, in a recreational game. Things can turn out ugly. Because winning in our culture means that success always comes to the strongest and the most overpowering. Now, nothing wrong with being strong, nothing wrong with being powerful. Keyword, overpowering. Success in our culture always seems to come to the strong and to the overpowering. So even if you are a Christian who believes that Jesus says, you know, that the kingdom of God comes in special part to the meek, you believe that in your head, but when it comes down to life, your actions and your behavior, my actions and my behavior are sometimes more influenced by the pressure I feel to get ahead than by the words that have come out of Jesus' mouth. And that's, that's the real struggle, right? We live in that world. So this whole book has been about how to balance the tension in which we, we belong to the kingdom of heaven, yet we have to live in a society and in a culture that is hostile to those beliefs. And so how do you win in a culture that tells you that winning comes from living contrary to the way of Jesus? And yet even in the midst of that, even in the secular world, there are these glimpses in the last decade of people saying the contrary. Think of the book that came out, uh, it was like, I think it was 10 or 15 years ago, the book Good to Great by Jim Collins. Uh, it was a huge bestseller in which he outlined how some of the greatest companies in the world are as great as they are. His number one reason was a particular type of leader. He called it, he called it the level five leader, which, uh, which greatest characteristic in contrast to everybody else, was humility. Was that leader's ability to think of the institution and the company rather than their own personal well-being. I think of some of the later books that came out, like the management guru, Simon Sinek, who wrote the book, Leaders Eat Last, in which you kind of get the general idea of what he's saying. We sometimes believe that leaders uh, uh, have to uh, take care of themselves and trickle the rest down. And yet, he has been finding that the best companies, the best nonprofits, the best groups are led by leaders who put their employees before themselves. Fast forward to uh, organizations like Gallup, who did the whole strength finders thing where their whole theory is you have to find how to tap into the potential of the people who are under you. And when they're successful, you'll be successful. There's this changing in the tide. In the business world, in the corporate world, in the secular world. And Jesus has been saying this long before any of them have. It turns out being selfish isn't a good thing after all. Not even for those who are being selfish. When you look at God's kingdom and God's way of living, and the way that God has designed things to be, you'll find the opposite, that success often comes to the lowly and to the humble of heart, contrary to what we have been told our entire lives. We saw this in extreme detail when we went through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, especially through the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five, where Jesus would say some outlandish things like the uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It is those types of people that the kingdom of God comes to. Now, he wasn't, Jesus wasn't saying if you're, uh, uh, you know, if you are powerful and if you do have a lot, then you need to like get rid of it all and pretend to be self-deprecating and then, you know, God's blessing will come upon you. He's not teaching you a different way of behavior. He was describing in the Beatitudes, this is the type of person that the kingdom of God is likely to come to. It's opposite of the type of person that the world considers to be successful. It is a type of person that the rest of the world has, has skipped by. The person that is marginalized, the person that is outcast, the person that has nothing, those are the types of people that God is thrilled to show his power towards. And so the Beatitudes have largely been a message of grace. It's not a message of, well, if you're not mourning, then you need to pretend to cry and then God will take notice of you or, you know, be poor, <laughs> you know, whatever that looks like. The underlying message is God comes to people. Listen, God helps people who cannot help themselves. It's different than the way my grandma used to tell me, which was the opposite, right? God actually helps people who can't help themselves. That was a message of the beatitude. It was a message of grace. But then once that grace starts to mess with your life, you're in awe of this God who just begins, who, who visits people who have nothing to offer, you see that that grace actually begins to transform their behavior. Jesus would say in Luke 22, verse 24 through 27, it says a dispute arose among his disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are also called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For one who is greater, one, uh, for who is greater, one who reclines at a table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Incredible. The disciples are there with Jesus arguing about who's winning. And he's saying, you want to know what winning really looks like? It's the person who's been so transformed by grace that they're willing to serve everybody else, even the people that are lower. By the way, I am the one who serves all of you, who you think is the great one in this case. It's grace that changes. I think that's why when Peter wraps up in his final greetings in verse 12, he kind of summarizes the rest of the letter by saying, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is grace. God comes to the undeserving and he transforms their life. And it's within that context that we see that the humble are the types of people who win, whatever that looks like, we'll talk about in a minute, in God's kingdom. Any form of long-lasting success and winning in God's kingdom takes on the form of humility. And this is where that barrage of, of commands to be humble comes from in verse five and verse six. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. And then he gives a reason, right? There's a conjunction right after that in verse five. Four, why should you be humble towards one another? 
For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There it is right there. You want to know what winning looks like in God's kingdom? God actually opposes those who are proud, those who are self-sufficient. He's against their, their agenda. But he actually elevates, look at this promise. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. He exalts those who are broken and humble, and he pushes down those who are self-sufficient. How do you win in God's kingdom? Humility. When, when Peter says the, to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, He's referring back to Exodus. This is a phrase that was kept being used over and over, the, the mighty hand of God. It became a catch-all phrase for just God's sovereignty, right? It, it showed up first in Exodus uh, when we see God battling on Israel's behalf with the plagues and Egypt, and it became this catch-all phrase for just God's sovereignty, God's control over all things. And so when Peter is borrowing that phrase, he's speaking about God's power and control. Humble yourselves Therefore, under the fact that God is in control, he might also say. This section of scripture powerfully confronts people's pride. Even the Christian's pride. Our undying proclivity, even after years of walking with Jesus, which, with some still coming to that place where you're like, I've been doing this for a few years, I think I've got this down. I've been doing the Christian thing for this amount of time. I, I can kind of relax and let my guard down a little bit. I'm a pretty righteous guy. I mean, five years ago I wasn't, and I really needed the gospel, but now I'm actually pretty righteous. God is blessed to have me. I'm so righteous. You know, like, we would never say things like that, but we look at our behavior and the way that we approach life, and we perhaps see an apathy or an indifference, all of which stems from a sense of self-sufficiency, and this powerfully confronts the self-sufficiency within us. So that when Peter says to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, he's not, he's not saying, hey, be self-deprecating, you know, uh, put yourself down always, don't try to do anything successful. When he says humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, He's essentially saying that when suffering comes, when hardship comes, entrust your soul to a God who's in control. In other words, just the same thing he's been saying. Just continue to cling to God because he's got this. That's your lot. Continue to cling to God who is in control and there will come a time where he will lift you up. Winning. But now, pride isn't always as obvious as we make it out, you know? When you hear, the, hear about the vice, pride, and you hear passages about being humble, uh, I imagine that many of us in this room immediately shrug it off as something that we don't deal with. I don't deal with pride. I don't know if you might be like me, but I, I sometimes think of pride as this caricature, of, you know, like this narcissistic like politician or hedge fund manager that's just like destroying everybody in his path and is just in love with himself. And I'm like, I am not like that. I love people. But listen, pride isn't all, doesn't always take the form of self-sufficiency. It doesn't always look like the picture that we draw up in our minds. 
Look at what Peter says immediately after telling us to humble ourselves. He then tells us to cast all of your anxiety on God. This is the flip side of the coin of pride. If on one end, pride looks like being completely self-sufficient or being under the illusion of self-sufficiency, the other side of the same coin is being anxious. Because what really happens when you and I worry about our lives? We have released the same control that God has over our lives that we were when we were trying to be self-sufficient. It's the same thing. When you're trying to be self-sufficient, when you're trying to pick yourself up by the spiritual bootstraps, you have largely left the power and control that God has to your own means. But what happens when you're anxious? You're doing the same thing and now you're worrying about it. You've tried to pick yourself up. You've tried to go about it by yourself. You've tried to do all the things necessary to put your life together on your own, apart from any help from God, and it's not working, and you're worrying about it. Worry always comes from this sense, oh, I should say almost always, comes from this place of a lack of trust in God's work in your life. And so whether it's self-sufficiency or whether it's anxiety, it's all the same flavor of pride, just different sides. Anxiety is simply me saying, I've lost trust in God, and now my life is falling apart. Or my life is falling apart. Where's, you know, where are you, God? And how kind and how good is God towards even people like us that still stumble into worry and anxiety from time to time. He doesn't say what I'd probably say to myself if I were worrying and I knew that it, that was wrong. You know, stop, you know, stopping and just buck up. <laughs> Put a smile on your face. God doesn't even say that. He says, hey, cast your anxieties on me, man. Just give it to me. I love that. He doesn't even say, hey, I know you're worrying and I know you're anxious, but, you know, stop it. (laughs) Pretend like it doesn't exist. He never says that. He says they do exist. Your problems do exist. And it is a huge thing. And worry is a legitimate feeling. But, you know, share it with me. Let me into that space and let me hold some of those burdens that you are, are, are having a difficult time holding on your own shoulders. Give them to me. When Peter says to cast our, our, our burdens and cares onto the Lord, he's actually quoting from Psalm 55, which is a beautiful psalm. If you want, you can turn there. I'm just going to read a few sections from it. But this is a psalm of David. And David right now, if you've noticed, you know, there, he has a, a few psalms of praise where he's just exalting God for how good he is. He also has a different flavor of psalm. We call them the psalms of lament. And they're worship psalms. They're, they're also types of praise, but we don't, we don't immediately interpret them that way because they sound like David is just complaining. He is. And all of church history has considered that to be an act of worship. you believe that? Because he's inviting God into his problems. And he's speaking honestly and vulnerably to God, and it is for him and for us, an act of worship. And I want you to step into this particular situation that David is having. Maybe some of you can relate. But it starts off in verse one of chapter, uh, Psalm 55. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. It's going through a difficult time. There's something really, 
really troubling David, and we get a sense of it in verse three, because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. Okay, now we got a, a picture of something that's going on. David is at the end of himself. He feels surrounded by enemies and they're attacking him. For whatever reason, it sounds like they're holding a grudge against him or they're trying to get even. They're they're certainly oppressing him and perhaps he feels alone and he's crying out to God in his lament and in his his complaint. His emotions start to bleed to the top in verse four. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. You ever feel that way? Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. Verse nine. Uh, Excuse me, verse, uh, actually, yeah, verse nine. Destroy, O Lord, uh, destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it and on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. And he's speaking about the situation of turmoil that he's in and enemies on all sides, and you're like, yeah, I can relate to that maybe. Then the plot thickens in verse 12, doesn't it? Listen to what David said. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. He goes on in verse 20, saying, My companion stretched out his hand against his friend. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, and yet they were drawn swords. Now we're getting a deeper picture of what David is going through. This isn't just some enemy. He's been betrayed by a close friend. And you know what that feels like? And yet in the middle of that, listen to David's prayer in verse 22. He does something that is very common with the psalmist's kind of rhetoric and poetry where they'll begin to speak to their own self. They'll speak to their soul. Examples like, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Just preaching to his soul. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. You know, the psalmist is preaching to themselves. It sounds like uh, uh, David is once again doing that in verse 22 when he says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And right here in this moment, Peter takes that same example, perhaps something that you experienced or are going through right now or maybe will go through, and he says, regardless of what it is, there's nothing too deep and too full of anguish, there's nothing too difficult and too harsh that God cannot carry some of that burden, and he invites us to do the same. Cast your anxieties on him. And yet where David says, because he will sustain you, which is also true, Peter drives it home just a little bit more personally. Cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you. You guys ever stop to think about something so majestic and yet somehow so, so personal at the same time, that the God of the universe cares about you. 
about all of the little nuances of your life, the logistics that are happening, all the things that nobody else in your life knows about. He, he is intimately acquainted with those things, Psalm 139 tells us, and he cares about them. In fact, Jesus would say in Matthew that this is a God who sees every sparrow that falls, can number all the hairs on your head. In other words, he's saying, I don't, I don't shirk by any detail. I know it all. And yet what my laser focus on is on my children. If fathers who are evil still give, give good gifts to their children, how much more so will God give good gifts to the people that he loves? Peter says, cast your cares on him. Why? Because he cares about you. And that relationship with God built on humility and trust, little by little over the course of your life will begin to shatter pride, shatter your self-sufficiency, your false sense of self-sufficiency, and melt down the anxieties around you because for all of the people in this room who are just staunchly self-sufficient, the gospel says, you think you're self-sufficient? Actually, you need God. You need his mighty right hand to work powerfully on your behalf. But to all of those people in the room who are anxious because they don't have their lives together, the same word says, oh, you think you don't have your life together? Good news, you don't. (laughs) So open up some space for me and roll those cares onto my shoulders. Because I care about you. Some of you need to hear this morning that God cares about you And I'm not saying like hundreds of you corporately, although that's true. I mean you. You specifically sitting in that seat listening to these words. God cares about you. Of all the things that he could care about in the world today, he cares about you. He says open up some of those problems that you have. Open up your laments. Open up your complaints. Open up your emotion. Cry out to me and let me occupy some of those dark places, I will carry the burden with you. The gospel moves us away from pride and towards humility so that we can have a right relationship with God, but that also begs the question, what is humility anyway? Growing up, I always thought of humility as some type of self-deprecation, you know, like if someone gives me a compliment, I must refuse the compliment. Like, oh, you're so good at, you know, Legos, you know, oh, nope, it's not me, it's the Lord. The Lord is good at Legos just a vessel in his hand or with the way I live my life like you know whether it's competition or it is business success you know not getting ahead as I should or not being successful there's a right way to be successful humility doesn't mean not using your talents it doesn't mean uh, self-deprecation it doesn't mean putting yourself down It is, if you want to think of it this way, a right way of viewing yourself in the face of viewing someone so much greater. (laughs) It's kind of a a perspective. I'm getting this from Romans chapter 12, verse 3, when Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. You can even think of yourself highly. And I think you should, as children of the living God, hello. Paul just says, don't think of yourself too highly. But to think with sober judgment, 
each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It's a right way of viewing yourself. I, I eternally love this line by uh, Timothy Keller, who wrote in one of his books, the essence of humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. It is a sober way of viewing myself in light of other people and of God. I think that's why Peter says in verse 8, be sober-minded. Have a right view of yourself. After he just got done telling us, be humble, don't be uh, overly self-sufficient, but don't also don't be anxious. Have a sober view of yourself in light of God. So from this point on, or from, from the beginning to uh, where we are now, the, the message has been this. In the midst of difficulty, and in the midst of hardship, in the midst of turmoil, whatever it is that life can throw your way, our posture as believers is not to think too highly of ourselves and not to think too little of ourselves, but to think less about ourselves and more about God. And to have more trust in God. And to let that humility play out in our relationships. And you have to ask yourself, why? What's at stake? And that's where the rest of the section of scripture comes in. You want to know what's at stake? The devil wants to destroy you. You're on a supernatural hit list. The devil wants to dismantle and destroy your life. And there is a sense in the world, spanning hundreds of years, which has dumbed down the reality in our minds that there is a devil, which is very strange because some people will believe in a God, but they won't also believe in a devil. But the Bible says, just as God exists, there also are fallen angels and the devil himself, author of evil. And he is real. I wouldn't say a supernatural being, I'd say more like supernormal being. That is in the world today, wreaking havoc to try to destroy people from knowing God. Why would Peter then tell us to be humble towards one another? The reason is because people aren't our adversary. Your family isn't your adversary, even though they might be getting on your nerves right now. Your roommates aren't your adversary. Your competition isn't your adversary. The people in the church that are bugging you right now aren't your adversary. Your neighbor that uh, keeps playing loud music at two in the morning, not your adversary. People in life who are legitimately trying to crush you, not your adversary. Peter says your adversary is the devil. And he is uh, roaming around prowling around like a a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This I have learned over the last 10 years, specifically in the city of Santa Barbara, is like Teflon to Christians. It is one of the most evasive things to grab a hold on because of the nature of the city in which we live. I'll give you an example. If you've ever gone on a short-term missions trip or a mission trip in general to, say, like an under, a, a developing country like Haiti or Thailand or something of that nature, you're almost intuitively prepared for spiritual battle. 
You don't even have to be told. There's like a, 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 there's a sense in you, okay, I'm going to some, some really spiritually difficult places. I better put on my armor of God. I better get my prayer on. I better spend the next two weeks in the word of God preparing for this because the devil is just, I mean, he's alive and well over there. You don't even have to leave the country. It could be Detroit. It could be Los Angeles. It could be Baltimore. It could be Washington, D.C. It could be Ventura. But somehow, like a marine layer that covers over everything in Santa Barbara, we are so easily deceived into thinking that things are okay. They're different here. And like the person who goes on a short-term missions trip to Haiti or to Thailand or to China with their A-game that also comes back home and lets their guard down because the spiritual war is over, so is the person so often in the city of Santa Barbara that lets their guard down because, you know, it's Santa Barbara. No devils here. I can't tell you how many times I have heard this somehow implied in the way that people talk, in the way that people live their lives, in this laissez-faire type of indifferent way of viewing Santa Barbara. It's, it's like a spiritual marine fog that covers us. Once we're here, we let our guard down because it feels so easy. And yet the spiritual warfare is there for any of you to look at with your own eyes if you so dare. Like any other town, everything from extreme poverty to human trafficking to drugs to crime to gangs, the list is nearly endless. And we are fooled by certain neighborhoods in Santa Barbara that give us this deceptive veneer that things are perfect, but they're not, are they? The devil roars and roams and prowls, looking for people to devour. And if you've been here long enough with your eyes open, you know that he's devouring people in our backyard. Perhaps more so is the danger here because so many people's guards have been let down. Whether it's the love of money or the violence or the trafficking or the poverty or the drugs, or just that basic sense that we get in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the, the God of this world, the devil, likes to blind the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see God. He is wreaking havoc in our backyard doing the thing that he does the best. C.S. Lewis once said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, the others to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the, dem the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Contrary to that, the Apostle Peter simply says, not far from an excessive unhealthy interest, far also from a disbelief in their existence, the, uh, Peter says to you and to the church in Asia Minor and to the church in Santa Barbara, be watchful. Do not be ignorant of the devil's schemes, Paul would say. Be watchful. So how does the devil devour? Well, if you're not saved, he can devour you any way that he wants. 
apart from the presence and the power of the King of Kings in your life, you are at his behest. And there's nothing that you can do to stop him. Apart from dropping your own weapons, metaphorically speaking, throwing yourself down on your knees at the mercy of the only person who has beat the devil at the cross and in the resurrection and lifting your eyes to him for help. Your only way of salvation away from spiritual attack is by throwing yourself at the mercy of the King of kings and Lord of lords, by repenting of your sins and by choosing this day to follow Jesus. How about for the rest of us? How about for Christians? How does the devil devour the Christian? Well, only if we let him. And one of the ways that we let him in this context is through pride. Every time we stumble into thinking that we are fine on our own, we're self-sufficient, or on that other side, we're so anxious because uh, we've, we've got to put things together on our own and we can't do it and we're worried and we've lost trust in God. Anytime we fix our minds and our attention and our hope on ourselves, the devil has an immediate end into your life. And it's not just emotions like anxiety. There's others like anger in Ephesians chapter four. Remember that Paul said, uh, Anger is in itself a sin. We could be angry without sinning. In fact, he tells us to do that. But he also says, don't be angry for too long. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because he knows the, the proclivity of the human heart that anger eventually turns into resentment. In the context, there's unforgiveness, right? When we harbor unforgiveness, it turns into resentment and then into bitterness. And as Hebrews says, bitterness is like a root that just goes down deep. And when we are in that place, when we are just enslaved to bitterness, we actually give an open opportunity, Paul says, to the devil. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, thereby giving a, a foothold or literally a place to the devil. The, the original word there is tapas, where we get the word, the modern word today, topography. It's, Paul is saying, when you allow certain things, when you're walking out of the will of God with something like bitterness and anger, you actually open space. Think of your soul as like a, a room. You open space to the devil. And again, anger is just another, or sinful anger, is just another form of pride. Another way of viewing ourselves higher than God. The list is probably fairly long, but I would say that it ultimately comes down to pride, that we trust in ourselves more than we trust in God, and when that happens, Satan comes in. I'll tell you that probably the number one way many of you are in danger of being devoured by the devil is through sheer neglect of abiding in Christ. And you could call it busyness. You can call it whatever you want. But the fact is that for many of you, your only spiritual diet is the 40 minutes or 50 minutes that you get from me on a Sunday morning. You never open up the word of God. You never abide in Christ in prayer. You're not in biblical community. You don't spend time with the God, your maker. You don't do any of that stuff. You spend six days a week fighting for yourself to win. 
and then you come into this building and you hope that 40 minutes will get you by when the, when the prince of darkness is trying to destroy you with every resource that he has imaginable, with the thousands of years of experience that he has with human beings, you think that 40 minutes a day with me is going to get you by? Brothers and sisters, we have to be watchful and vigilant. We have, if, if we believe that following Jesus is something worth doing with our very lives, we need to make living sacrifices of our lives. This cannot be a Sunday thing. You've got to dive into this. Now, I know Santa Barbans are tremendously busy, and I sympathize with that. But I also know that busy Santa Barbans also somehow find ways to do other things that they love to do. All of you who love the gym, you figure out a way to do it. I see you. You're looking good. <laughs> All of you who have startup businesses, you figure out a way to launch that thing. All of you who have jobs, all of you who have hobbies, all of you who have anything, you figure out a way to do that stuff because you care about it. Do you also not care about the part of you that is most important, your very soul? Be vigilant and be watchful. It is pride that says, I am too busy to spend time with God. I'm going to pull this off on my own. What the children of God should do if humility actually hits them is say, I can't even start off this day. I'm not even going to exit my home without praying for myself, without praying for my spouse, without praying for my kids. I'm not even going to try to approach life apart from the presence and power of my God. And for that person, they know that they're more than conquerors through Christ who loves them. The great irony here is that the devil is a defeated foe. He actually doesn't have any rights in the Christian's life. The Bible says that he has been humiliated on the cross, uh, the book of Colossians tells us. We're also told in Ephesians and Corinthians that we have divinely powerful weapons in the spiritual realm for the destroying of Satan's fortresses or his strongholds. And one of them is prayer. We're told that we are identified with Christ, our life is hidden with Christ, we are seated on high with Christ, we have everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness, our inheritance is in Christ, and we are more than conquerors. Jesus is a conqueror, we're actually called more than conquerors. Do you believe that? So much so that the devil cannot do anything to your soul that you do not first let him do. Now, I'm not saying he can't attack you or hurt you. He can certainly do that. But he can't move you in any meaningfully, uh, meaningful way unless you let him. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27 tells us he's basically just a squatter. So don't give him a room to stay. A squatter doesn't have any rights either. But until... The owner recognizes that they're in there without any legal means. They can stay there as long as they want. And the devil is a squatter. He'll stay in any amount of space that you give him as long as you let him. Calling on my brothers and sisters today to get him out of the rooms. He has no right in your life. He has no right in your marriage. He has no right in your children 
in their rooms, in their sleep. He has no right in your job place. He has no right in your relationships. And you have all the authority and power to expel him by the power of Jesus Christ. I say we start doing some some cleaning today. I say we start doing some spring cleaning early this fall. You hand the devil that eviction notice this week and you tell him never to come back. You are the beloved of God. And the Holy Spirit now occupies you. The last couple things that uh, Peter says, the first one is (laughs) kind of funny. He, He basically in a roundabout way says, you know, you're not alone in all of this. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. <laughs> I love what he says, because it's true, but it's also like a, feels like a backhanded encouragement, you know? <laughs> like, hey, I know you're, you're going through a lot, but, you know, everybody is. So, don't cry. <laughs> it reminds me of, like, every parent everywhere that's ever had, like, kids. So, like, if you've ever had, like, one kid, you can kind of spot that person, right? Well, no, you can't, because <laughs> they're gone. They're like, they disappear from the public eye. When they do emerge into the public eye, they kind of have this like tired look. They don't, they don't get a lot of sleep, and they express the difficulties of having a baby. For the people that have two babies, something happens when you have two kids. One, you realize how hard it actually is, and then you begin judging people who don't have two kids. And then when you have three kids, you begin to realize how hard it actually is, and then you begin judging people with two kids. You're like, that's not hard at all. But then I've noticed with people who have four kids, something shifts. For people with four kids, you could, you could call, uh, if I could give it a little bit of a story arc. One baby, I'm so tired. Two kids, ah! Three kids, I'm literally dying. But four kids, whatever. And then for the people that I've seen with five kids, they're like getting excited. They're like, I'm, I'm growing my own babysitters, man. This is amazing. <laughs> and they're going on date nights. Like their oldest kid is watching their kids. They're going out to movies all throughout the night while the rest of us are like, I'm so tired. <laughs> then for the people with six kids, my friend Jason Lamolino, the pastor at Isla Vista Church, just had his sixth kid. For people like that, they just kind of walk around with a perpetual smile glazed to their face, you know, like, (laughs) you know, just like, hey. (laughs) So there's like this story arc that I just see in parents, like hard, 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 easy, it's okay, it's going to be all right. (laughs) But everyone at one stage looks at the people behind them and they're like, hey, you're going to be fine. Like it's, <laughs> you're fine. I've suffered. You're going to be okay. And everyone says that to the people behind them. This is kind of, it feels like the way, what Peter's saying to us. It's like a backhanded comment, uh, uh, encouragement. It's like, I know that you had a flat tire, but you know, people are dying all over the world. You're going to be okay. Just cling to Christ. But the reason that it's going to be okay isn't because people around us are suffering. It's this last line. God will get you through it. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. This is an incredible promise. 
In other words, it was all grace to begin with. You were saved by grace. He brought you into the kingdom of God by grace. But it's also God in his grace that sustains you now. But it's also God in his grace that's going to bring you to completion. It's God in his grace over and over and over. It's God's power on display for his people. This is an incredible promise of God. And usually when Peter and Paul wrap up a letter like this, they do it in a, a benediction, like a prayer form. He, would, he might say something like, I pray that God would restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Only place where he doesn't do that. This is not a benediction. This is a promise. He's saying after you've suffered a little while, if you endure, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You're going to be okay. Stay the course and cling to God who is faithful to you. In other words, for the believer that trusts in Christ, you will not be shaken. You will not be shaken. I love the, the flurry of hope given by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Sure, we're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Yeah, we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We might be struck down, but we're not destroyed. We'll suffer in this life, but we won't be shaken. Now, if it's all by grace, then what is it that we do? If it's all God working on our behalf, then what part do we have to play? I love what Paul said in the letter to Titus in chapter 2 when he said, Well, actually, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The same undeserved grace that we get, free from our own efforts, apart from our own merit, eventually begins to train us to be just like Jesus. So we walk in that training. We walk in that grace. That's why the best soil for grace to work deeply in is that posture of humility and dependence on God. It is daily coming before God and saying, gosh, I need you. There's spiritual warfare and darkness. There's a, a, a hostile society and culture against everything that I believe in. There's even my own silly flesh and I do the thing that I don't even want to do. The thing that I want to do, I don't do that. God, I need you today. I pray for the power and grace of your presence to be upon me that you would help me to do everything that you have called me to do. As Paul would say, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient. And so humility isn't saying, I am completely insufficient. It is saying my sufficiency comes from Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this morning. And as we leave in this place, there might be a couple of you in, a different, in different spots. Perhaps some of you are saying, Perhaps some of you feel tired and weary and bedraggled, worn out and fatigued. Truly tired from just trying, trying to make it happen, whether it's physically or emotionally or spiritually, relationally. The gospel and the letter to First Peter to you is stop. Joyfully stop. Cast your burdens on the Lord and let him take care of you. Put your hope in God. For some of you that are in this room, you've already felt the power and the grace of God in your life. You've, you've experienced in the last few weeks 
God has been with me. The next step for you is probably that last line that Peter gives us to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Maybe the only thing left for you to do today is to just thank him and worship him for you have recognized his mighty hand. And regardless of where you are today or where you're going or where you've been, the promises of God are not contingent on your circumstances. Whether things are prosperous or things are poor, whether things are successful or things are falling apart, God's promises to you will never fail. And his promises today are, I am going to finish in you what I started and not the powers of hell, not the deceitful schemes of the world, not even your own flesh can deter my eternal purpose. Your only job this morning is to cling to that promise and to cling to him. Knowing that as you do, God works in your faith. And it's actually not the burnt offerings or as we would put in our vernacular, the singing and clapping and preaching, but the sacrifices of God, David said, are a broken spirit. And a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. In the same way that my overly self-sufficient daughter, whenever she asks me for help, it like melts my heart. So the, the good father looks at you and he says, how can I, how can I be involved in your life? Maybe you don't even know what to ask him. Maybe the only thing for you to do today is, is cry. And he will accept your tears. And he will be present with you. And he will never leave you. And he will never forsake you. And there will come a time where we will see him face to face. And the little things that we've suffered along the way that felt so big when we were going through them will pale in comparison to the glory that is awaiting you and I. And while that is years down the line, and we hate waiting, we do get a glimpse of that today as we pray together as a church for that glimpse every time we say, may your kingdom come and your will be done in Santa Barbara as it is in heaven.